Welcome to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Over the next hour, Deborah, Tracy, and their guests will help you understand therapist burnout and how to feel better now. Listen close to bring vitality back to your practice. Now, here are Deborah and Tracy. Welcome to Reconceive. I'm Deborah. And I'm Tracy. And today we're here to talk about being the change that you want to see in the world. Right. Which is a statement attributed to Mahatma Gandhi. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. I had to look it up. But yeah. So we're going to talk about social problems today and how our work as helpers can actually be a political act. Intentional or unintentional? I'm glad we're doing this episode. Deborah came up with this idea, and it's something, even though I've been in business uh, for 12 years, it's something I haven't thought about very much, about how the work I do is related to the society that I work in and Mm-hmm. Also, the society that the people I hope work within or live in. Yeah. Most people don't think of it that way. Most of the time, therapists and other helpers think of what we do as a very private, personal act, not as a political act or a um, a public act or something that's going to affect the culture. We're just not used to thinking of it in that way. That's true. I always, I, you know, until very recently, I've always thought about my work being separate from pretty much everything. Right. You know, I'm in a room with normally one other person, and it, it feels like, um, you know, its own universe. Yes, it sort of does, and it sort of is. And and thankfully, we are working behind a closed door, so we're offering this privacy in a way. But today, we want to invite you to consider that the way you work is automatically political. It, it is social. So um, the statement, the personal is political, I'm wondering if you, the listener, have heard that before the personal is political does that ring a bell to you it it does for me um but i was trained in a very feminist psychology program at texas women's university and that statement that's attributed to carol hanish from like 1969 which was then repeated throughout the first wave feminism movement um has been sort of a um, a centerpiece for the way the way that we were trained to think about families in particular, that there's always a, a political aspect to the way you're working with a family that has a ripple effect out into the culture. So it's never just you working with one person and one person's individual pathology. There's a bigger picture, always. I was listening to Katie Halper interview Gabor Mate last night about his new book, which I think Deborah's been reading, correct? The Myth of Normal. Right. And he talks about how you can't separate mind and body, Mm. and you can't separate the individual from the society they live in. Yeah. And I thought that one statement really made help this make sense. I'm so glad you said that. That's what I was trying to remember earlier. You can't separate the mind from the body. And even just speaking of them as two things, mind and body, really kind of obscures the fact of them being all one thing. It does. I mean, when you when people talk about mind and body connection or separation, I believe they're really talking about awareness. And I think it was Moshe Feldenkrais who said, awareness is not essential to life. What did he mean by that? 
He meant that we're designed to be automated in movement, thought, and emotion. He worked mainly in movement. So like you brush your teeth the same way every day. So you don't have to be aware. Maybe you get finished brushing your teeth and two minutes later you think, did I brush my teeth? Because you did it on autopilot. Right. You did it in an automated way that requires pretty much no awareness. And we're designed to be that way? We're designed to be that way. Otherwise, we'd never make it out the door in the morning. You'd have to relearn <laughs> how to put pants on and how to shave. And every day. Every day. New adventure. Right. But the big problem comes in in that once people reach a point in their lives when they're able to make a living doing what they train to do, they can pretty much turn off any organic learning, any real substantial life-changing learning can pretty much stop once you're able to make a living. So we're designed so that we could be that way, but do we want to be that way? We do not want to be that way. I mean, sometimes it's absolutely necessary, but unless you do things with a lot of attention and awareness, your brain does not benefit. And they've done a lot of brain research that shows that if you do a movement without paying attention to what it feels like to do it, mm-hmm. your brain doesn't light up. Mm-hmm. But the minute you pay attention to what it feels like to do a movement, your brain lights up, your brain starts creating new synaptic pathways and you're upgrading your brain, which is what we're designed to do throughout our whole life. Even the day that we die can be a day where you can upgrade your brain. Wow. We don't have to just go fallow and just stop learning at the end. We can keep squeezing the juice out. Exactly. So the same can be said, I think, um, with the individual symptoms like my depression and the wider world in which I live. You can't really separate those things. And we're basing some of our conversation about this today on an article or a chapter, or actually it's it's an entire book, um, Constructing the Self, Constructing America, written by Philip Cushman in 1995. And so the chapter that we're most focused on is psychotherapy as moral discourse. Um, So the idea here, the, the basic premise is that even though we deal privately behind closed doors with a person's um, personal life, their depression, their pain, their um, relationship distress, seemingly shut off from the rest of the world, what we do in therapy, any kind of therapy, is political. So even in physical therapy, even in any sort of body work, what you're doing is political. And so we're going to talk about how that's true and how you are a political being, whether you know it or not. Um, So we've got some questions for our listeners to kind of get the ball rolling here. And here's the question. Number one, as a person, do you consider yourself political? And if so, how? So I I never really did until recently consider myself a political person. I just basically followed corporate media, which divides us into red and blue. Mm-hmm. But recently I've discovered that, for one thing, there are a lot of things that everybody agrees on or the majority of people agree on, which are rarely talked about. Mm. So most of the things that are talked about on corporate media are things that are designed to divide people. Mm. So, and then you become this political person that disagrees 
with this group of political people. Mm. But I've very recently decided it's more important to focus on what do we agree on? What a radical concept. Right. It goes really against what our culture promotes. So you're becoming more aware of yourself as a political person. And the way that's happening is you're consuming a different kind of media. Yes, I've expanded my media diet dramatically to include a lot more independent journalism. Like I was listening to uh, people talk about how CNN, their sponsors are defense contractors. Mm-hmm. And I, I believe Raytheon even advertises on CNN, like, uh, you know, I'm going to buy a bomb or something. Mm. Like, why are they advertising on CNN? Yeah. Well, they're big donors. They pay the salaries of those reporters so that news is going to be biased Okay. Uh, to support the defense industry. Sure, yeah. So once you realize, you know, that, that that's happening – at least for me, I started to look elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so um, I guess I'll, I'll say something about myself as a political person here. I have been trying to ignore the news completely since 2017. Um, well, I couldn't for a while. And then I, I just got so fed up with it. I tried to really get away from it. And then again, in 2020, I came back to the news, um, mostly public television versions of that. Um, so so I have deluded myself at times into thinking that I'm not political. But just this morning, I thought, you know what, I need to look at the headlines, just because we're going to talk about the wider world. And so I was checking out NPR um, news online, and I found that the doomsday clock, which I didn't even know existed, has been moved to 90 seconds to midnight, signaling more peril than ever. And so, you know, I I read that. I thought, you know, I've never known about the doomsday clock. Maybe our listeners do know know about it. Yes. You did. Been around a long time, I believe. Okay. Uh (laughs) Yeah. So you see. Uh, but that sort of idea, we're, we're in more peril than ever, we're closer than ever to peril, those kinds of messages affect me. The language affects me. It's, it's very scary. And I know that that's affecting everybody around me, too. That messaging is coming through that we should all be afraid. And so, in a way, when I look at the process of, of information being disseminated, then I do become very political because I care about how we're all feeling about the world in which we live. And I don't know, maybe there's a, a positive aspect to a doomsday clock ticking in the background, but there's definitely a downside to that. It, it generates a lot of fear. Yeah. And since we're all connected in a way yeah. It transmits through everybody. It affects everybody. Yeah. So <clears throat> here's another question for you all. As a professional, do you feel like your work is political? I, I never did until we started thinking about this episode. And Deborah and I were talking this morning, and I realized that what I try to do in my practice is directly opposed to what society, our society, promotes. Mm -hmm. So I never realized until a day or two ago that I'm pretty radical. You are. And we're going to get into that in more depth shortly. Um, I I think I am pretty radical too, and I'm going to tell you some more about that later. Um, and I feel like I've been kind of aware of that, but it I didn't call it political. I called it something else. I like for people to have emotional options so that we're not having to feel obligated or bound to particular rules um, like patriarchal 
assumptions about what we should do. Um, for instance, staying loyal to parents who abuse you. So keeping yourself sort of trapped in particular relationships with your parents when your parents have been um, abusive to you in the past, you know, giving people options, talking about how you can reorganize your life and you can create a family of choice. You're not stuck having to honor thy father and thy mother in the way you were taught. And so I guess maybe I thought of myself more as questioning religious order status quo, the, the, the sort of the Christian overlay of our culture, but not really thinking of myself as political. So Tracy, what are your top three values? Could you name three? I can name honesty. I can name justice. And I can name two, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I would say I could name beauty. I would put beauty first, the aesthetic, which doesn't sound very important, but I think it is. Um, relationship, I would put second. I have to name four. So I have Perfect. one for you. I have an extra <laughs> I, thank you. You can have it. Um, <clears throat> the relational, number two. Number three, emotional freedom, which I mentioned a second ago. And four, imagination. I think that's one of yours, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure I could think of more. I've just, I've never thought of that, about really sitting down and thinking about what my values are, mm -hmm. which may sound odd, but I've We're just never done it. We're not asked that question very much. Right. None of my teachers in school ever asked me what my values were. Ah. Well, so listeners, what are your top values? What are the handful of things that you value the most? And then a follow-up question to that, what are your top values in therapy? What are your top values in the work you do as you're helping people? Do you value, do you value conformity? That could be a value of yours. Do you value people getting along? So sort of peacemaking. Um, do you value the nuclear family over other forms of connection, other aspects of our connectedness? Do you value biological family over family of choice? Do you value a particular religious point of view? What, what are the top three values that you hold as a person? And then how do they make their way into your therapy? Now that you talk about it, you, you kind of make it sound easy. But I'm going to jump on the relational bandwagon. Okay. Because since we did our first 13 episodes, the last three, we started talking about co-therapy. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing more and more as we do co-therapy, so with Deborah and I working as a team, helping individuals or families or groups, it makes such a difference in helping me stay in social engagement mode, mm -hmm. which allows me to be more creative, more curious, to appreciate and create beauty. All of these things are really part of a growth fostering relationship to quote Amy Banks. Yeah. And that takes us right into some basic ideas from um, Cushman. This is coming in part from, from Cushman. Also, other sources that I'll mention in a little bit, but emotions are not just in the individual person. And this kind of goes to your point. We're, we are sharing emotion, right? Like you mentioned something about cortisol this morning. Right. I was listening to Tara Swart Bieber. I think um, I may not have her name exactly right. This morning, she's a, a British neuroscientist, 
And she talked about if you're around somebody who is suppressing a lot of anxiety, their bodies actually release cortisol. It is absorbed through your skin and enters your bloodstream. So now you're circulating their cortisol through your body. That's amazing to me. It is amazing. And, you know, I was telling Deborah, if we're working with somebody who's doing that, you know, you get half of their cortisol and I get half. So we've each reduced our dose of their cortisol by half, which is a huge benefit. Right, exactly. So then another idea related is that the problems that bring us to therapy have roots extending in all directions. In other words, as a human systems thinker, if I'm coming in with my depression, that is not just existing in me. My emotional state is connected to everybody else's in my life and has something to do with the quality of my connections with everybody, including my neighbors that I think I don't know very well. Right. That sounds like the Jungian collective unconscious. Does. I mean, in in a way, we're all moving like fish, a group of fish in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. We're not individual at all, which you can certainly feel in that cortisol bit. In that, and, you know, we talked about the mirroring system right. that we all have. So that that relational component is just so big for therapists of any or helpers of any stripe because you've got their cortisol, you're, you're able to mirror or feel their emotional state. It can all be a, a lot especially if you're working one-on-one. But as Deborah and I have discovered, you know, when she's working with the client in co-therapy, I'm holding space for her. And when I'm working with them, she's holding space for me. Mm -hmm. And if I feel myself being dragged into their biobehavioral state, all I have to do is look over at Deborah. She'll smile. <laughs> I'll be, I think, okay, I'm okay. Yeah. We're, we're doing good. We're it? doing good. We're okay. So uh, I really like our new project a lot. I do too. It's way easier to work in this way. It is way easier. It's way healthier. Mm-hmm. And we've also talked about Gene Baker Miller, mm-hmm. who in the early 70s or late 60s talked about how if if there's one person in a therapy session who's not benefiting, then nobody really benefits. Yeah. Everybody within the session needs to benefit. And here's another radical idea that we came up with. And that is that we as therapists need to benefit from every session we do. Yeah, that is radical. This session is for you, the client, but it's also for us. Uh-huh. Right. There are people who are raising an eyebrow and looking askance at that thought. Um, but here's another thought for you um, before we go to break. Even mental illness, even things we call illness like psychosis, even the most extreme situations are not an individual problem. Do you believe that? They look like they're individual. This person has a problem they're bringing into you. But if you think about all of the events that had to be set into motion um, to allow this particular set of symptoms to emerge, there's no way that it all exists inside this one person because we are relational beings. And so everything we're doing and everything we're experiencing has its connections in the social surround in the family system. So therapists have values here and we're hoping that you can start to recognize your own. Maybe you disagree with something that we're talking about, which is a way for you to recognize what your values are. Maybe you disagree with this whole thing. That's fine. Just notice if you value a more individual view or if you value a more collective view, 
either way, you're going to have feelings about what we're saying today. Therapists have values that are communicated in the therapy session. Um, and you may not be aware that you're communicating your values, your political values and your worldview. You are saying something about who you are in those ways. So when we come back, we will pick up on this idea about your values and yourself as a political person and therapist after the break. Burnout takes a toll on your effectiveness with clients, patients, and students, even your kids. Reconceive brings help for all the gifted helpers out there who want to make a difference, but first need to feel better, more awake, and more creative. Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield show you a whole new way to think about mental health and the body, offering insight and inspiration to help bring back the vibrancy and joy to your work in the world. If you teach, do therapy, or provide any kind of human service, it's time to reconceive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Reconceive with Deborah Cox and Tracy Maxfield. Have a question for Deborah, Tracy, or their guests? Join us on the show at 888-346-9141. That's 888-346-9141. Now back to Reconceive. Welcome back to Reconceive. I'm Deborah, And I'm Tracy. And I'd like to take this opportunity to wish Deborah a happy birthday. <laughs> yesterday. Her birthday was yesterday, but... Uh, <laughs> I thought the world should know. Oh, thank you. And I also so great. wanted to mention that um, she and I have been working with a men's group and that I recognized something as I was watching Deborah work with this men's group. And I, I've told her this, but I was just so impressed with her ability to kind of organize the conversation of the men's group. And it reminded me of a symphony conductor. I love that. And I want to mention this because I believe that her, so Deborah's a musician, you've been to the symphony a lot, correct? Uh -huh. Because your parents. there, yeah. Yeah. So I realized when I was witnessing this that her experience with symphonies and playing music herself has actually made her a better therapist. Thank you. And it's important for people to realize that getting better at something often happens by getting better at something else. That's so true, which is a very political statement to make if you think about the implications of music and the arts in schools. Do we value that? Do we think of it as important to our roles in society as workers? I tell you, I never valued it as much as I do after watching you with that men's group. But Anat Banyel talks about it all the time. She talks about how you, if you know somebody who's good at something, they're normally good at a lot of things. That's so cool. So I, I do want to say that it really made me realize that a liberal arts education has the potential to make you better mm -hmm. at anything else you want to do in life. Mm. So yes, this is my little promotion of the arts <laughs> and beauty and music and oh, dance yeah. because I witnessed it when Deborah was guiding this group of men. And I was like, this relates directly back to her experience as a musician, an artist, 
and all of the time she spent listening to symphonic music. Oh, I just love that. I can't even tell you how much I love that. And Marin Alsop, I hope you hear this at some point because you are my new hero, Shiro. <laughs> so, okay. Um, let's talk about the status quo for a second because we've been talking about your values, our values, our worldview, and how that translates into our therapy, which makes it political in nature. There's no way to avoid being political in this kind of work um, or maybe in any kind of work. But let's just talk about the status quo in mainstream U.S. culture for now. And, and I don't think this is just the U.S. I think this is kind of mainstream global culture in a way. Um, but the first thing is corporate dominance, the, the dominance, the, the preeminence of the corporation over the person or over the collective um, neighborhood. The, the corporation is everything. Business is everything. Right, especially since it's always been true to a degree, but especially since Citizens United was passed by the Supreme Court. And I, I, I like Chris Hedges. He's a great independent journalist. And he says, you know, the corporate coup d'etat is over. Mm -hmm. The corporations run America. Mm -hmm. And I, I believe that's true. And corporations want to make more money. They want more profit. Yeah. So they help sculpt the society into a society that creates people that work, that don't complain, mm -hmm. that don't, you know, gather together and form movements that could change them and make them less profitable. Right. So, yeah, it's a big problem. You know, what you're saying reminds me of working at a university and sitting in meetings thinking this is the most mind numbing experience I can remember having in a long time since I stopped going to church, uh, sitting, sitting in a meeting for, you know, an hour or two, big chunk of a Tuesday, really prime time for doing creative work or being, you know, having fun, joking, laughing with people. And we're sitting here, looking at this piece of paper in front of us that's got an agenda on it. And I think people to get comfortable there would have to dissociate, right? And become a little bit like a cog. Right. It's, you know, numbing means that your brain is being downgraded. Yeah. But I, I listened to an interview of uh, Alan Greenspan, the the head of the Federal Reserve for a while. And he said his job was made easy because of worker insecurity. So corporations like workers to feel insecure because then they won't ask for higher wages. So numb and insecure. Yes. So the second thing on this list is the medical model dominance. So we have corporate dominance, and then we also have the dominance of this thing called the medical model. And what does that mean? Well, that means a lot of things, but it it means first that we value that which traditional Western medicine does over um, other kinds of quote unquote alternative or um, non-traditional approaches to health. And, and we even support um, corporations that are going to make us less healthy um, and so that we have to rely on medicine at some point to help us regulate or, or uh, mitigate the damages from, uh, you know, this corporate participation. I'm thinking about fast food here. That's just a low-hanging fruit. We could look at all sorts of other examples of that, but fast food, advertising directly to children. Right, which uh, Ralph Nader calls child molestation. Right. You know, bypassing 
parental input, right? marketing directly to children and basically telling the children to tell their parents, buy me this, buy me that. Exactly. And, you know, America has the most pro-inflammatory diet on the planet. Right. By design. Which means that those children are, in short order, going to need medical help to address their inflammatory diet, the effects of it. And yeah. now we're, we're going to have pediatric um, gastric bypass uh, at younger ages. Oh, yeah, that's horrible. And our medical system is privatized, so it's corporations that are interested in profit. So, you know, I think the third leading cause, and don't quote me on this, is of death in the U.S. is going to the hospital. A lot of people die from just going. I mean, being checked in as a patient, mm -hmm. but a lot of things go wrong. Yeah. So uh, the consumer ethos is another thing on the list here. You think about for a minute how deeply ingrained is our tendency to um, consume and to get to buy more and to have more stuff that we have to then move around or more stuff that we have to try to figure out how to dispose of later that's going into the landfill or that we have to try to figure out how to recycle if we're doing that. Um, more and more consumption of um, goods that are not, um, they're not long lasting or we're, we're not expected to use them for a long time. Which is horrible for the environment for one thing. And for us, too, just getting crowded in with all the stuff. The stuff it reminds me of that old George Carlin skit. <laughs> he talks about, this is my stuff. <laughs> you have your stuff. I remember I paid for a storage unit full of stuff for a couple of years. And I went to get it out. And I thought, I don't need any of this. <laughs> what a waste of money. Yeah, right, right. So, okay. Um Productivity over being. We've talked about that quite a lot. And actually, there are a number of mental health organizations throughout our country and beyond who do value productivity over being. And certainly over the therapist's being. But productivity um, over the client being as well. Right. Yeah, the, the, you know, one of the main reasons we started co-therapy was we didn't want to feel disposable. Mm -hmm. And now we've taken it even farther. You know, we are going to benefit from every session. Yeah. So then competition is a value in mainstream culture, competition for everything. And it's not a competition with like, we're going to run together. We're going to see who gets there first. This is a competition over against power over. Who can I dominate? I need to be the best. I need to be the most successful or I'm nothing. That reminds me, when I started my business, I, I wanted to do some marketing. So I went to a marketing meeting and I was amazed. They said things like, destroy the competition destroy and it made me incredibly uncomfortable i never went back i thought that's horrible <laughs> i don't i don't have any desire to destroy my competition i was in the wrong place yeah yeah but that's a mainstream thought oh sure yeah it seemed normal to most of the people in the meeting i think i was the only one cringing yeah, I think these big mental health conglomerates sort of have in mind of destroying the competition, vanquish them so that we are the only game in town. That sounds very loving. Right. <laughs> um, so individualism, the, the bounded self versus communalism or the relational worldview. What does that mean? So the bound itself, I don't know, listeners, if that's something that you have heard before, but Cushman talks about the bound itself, this idea 
that you are a separate entity and that you have these boundaries around you. And I'm not trying to say here that I disagree with the idea of boundaries. I think boundaries are important, but this notion that we have in mainstream culture that you are almost like an island and I don't affect you and you don't affect me. And we can name this sort of true self that exists way down deep. And all we have to do is really listen inside to access it. So Cushman says that's a, that's a myth. And there, there are plenty of others who say that's a myth. I think it's a myth. And it's, it's individualism is promoted by, I mean, it benefits corporations. Mm -hmm. Anything that separates people so they don't form into any kind of social movement benefits corporations. So communal living, uh, my friend Etta Madden, who's been on the show, has studied communal living. She's looked at these groups that have um, developed all over the world where people have decided they wanted to live as a group in a kind of shared area and have maybe shared cooking space. And um, maybe they have individual cabins or whatever, but they come together to make decisions about how they're going to handle resources and, and they're going to be family to each other. And she began to describe that to me years ago. And I was very turned off. I thought, Oh, I could never do that. I, I value my alone time. I value my stuff. I want my stuff over here. I don't want anybody to mess with it. Um, today, probably a good 15 years since she told me about studying communes, I think that sounds great. I think it aligns with uh, how we were, you know, how we evolved. Hunter-gatherer groups Really, you know, Gaber Mate talks about how the children from hunter-gatherer groups had a lot of attachments, a lot of secure attachments. Mm -hmm. So people in the group would help raise the child so that, and he also talks about how teachers should be attachment specialist. Mm -hmm. And as Deborah and I have worked our way through this reconceived project, I I've thought back at my schooling and thought, you know, I wish I had dropped out of school after fifth or sixth grade. Really? Fifth or sixth? Yeah. I would I would rather be wandering around the woods or riding my bike because I feel like uh public education, you know, you're you're uh, in junior high, no more recess. You're supposed to sit facing forward yeah. so they don't teach you how to socially interact with your peers. Mm -hmm. They don't teach you about uh, civics. They don't teach you about movement. Mm -hmm. All of those things are incredibly detrimental to health. Right. In fact, thinking about schools, um, personal responsibility is emphasized in schools over community or community responsibility. You as an individual making proper choices and you being in charge of your own behavior, which is not a bad thing. I mean, because there is some personal responsibility there to be taken, but the emphasis of that to the exclusion of community and to the exclusion of having many people to bond with, to the exclusion of having children bonding with each other and cooperating and getting to know each other, having them look straight ahead, look at a screen instead of at each other. And sit still. And sit still. Be quiet, sit still. Yes. Or if you're like me in the 1980s, <laughs> wear your skirt and your pantyhose at Christian school. Yeah. And you can learn in a skirt and pantyhose and high heels just is really... That's a mistaken notion. Right. And you talked about how you would have to sit in a certain way to be proper. Mm -hmm. And Anat Bonyel talks about how effort and um, sensitivity live on the same spectrum. Mm -hmm. So the more information 
or more effort you're using, the less information goes to your brain. So it's actually a way to downgrade your brain. Yeah. Uh, you know, for 16 years for me. Yeah. Sit still, you know, be quiet, and uh, we'll try to shove information in your noodle. That explains the Swiss cheese of my fund of information. Right, yeah. We should be mapping our bodies and our brains because everything we learn, we learn through feeling. Right. But, you know, traditional public education reduces people's ability to feel. Right. So then compliance is the last thing on this list that I want to mention here. Compliance as something that is valued in the status quo. In other words, take in the directions from your authority figure and then enact what you're told without question. Right? So it's it's inappropriate for you to question what's coming to you as direction. Right. I mean, that's what the ruling elites prefer. Yeah. Don't question it. Don't concern yourself with it. Just do it. Just be, fit yourself into this little square peg or whatever, this this round hole. <laughs> right, right. I mean, most people I meet believe they can be more than they are. They just have no idea how to achieve it. Mm -hmm. So they have a subtle kind of hint that they are more than the life that's been prescribed to them by the culture. Right. Even people who have careers and they make a lot of money, you know, they still feel as if they could be more than they are. And they could. And they could. So... I know that we'll have to come back to this topic um, at a later time to get to all of the thoughts that Tracy and I have been talking about with regard to how our political and personal values make their way into therapy and why we think that's a good idea. But maybe we can just get a little started here with a little bit of it and talk about specifically what we're doing different in therapy and why. So. Let me just ask you, um, we talked about your values briefly, and you said honesty, and then you said, what was the next one? Oh, I can't remember. Well, I think you you agreed with my imagination. That was one of them. Imagination, beauty. I liked all of yours. Uh, uh, Honesty and... Justice. You said justice. 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 Accountability for the effects we have on others. Is that what you would say justice would be? Yes. Um, And freedom, you know, justice and freedom, in my mind, go, you know, hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And when I listen to Ralph Nader talk, he quotes Marcus Cicero from the Roman Empire, over 2,000 years ago, who defined freedom as participation in power. And uh, that's, I think, the best definition of freedom I've ever heard. I think all people should be able to participate in power. Mm -hmm. But that does not happen in our society, at least on a a broad level, it can happen locally, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful when it does. Mm-hmm. But for for the most part, most people do not get to participate in power. Which, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about your therapy, your particular brand of therapy, and how clients do participate in the power of that therapy experience. You're you're not, you know, the expert sitting on a throne telling them what to do or acting like you you know everything you're getting information directly from their bodies right and i invent as i go so the the first my first priority because i believe most behavior is a, an emergent property mm-hmm. of the biobehavioral state you're in so i need to be in social engagement my client needs to be in social engagement. If we can't achieve that, then it's really hard to 
make any kind of meaning, meaningful progress. And by that, you mean looking at this from a polyvagal point of view, their nervous system needs to be in that rest and digest, that social engagement, the, the green zone, if you will, of the, the ventral vagal state. Right. So what Stephen Porges in his book, um, he talks about the transformative power of feeling safe. People need to feel safe first and foremost. If they don't, then their thinking is hijacked, their creativity is gone. All they're all they're focused on is um, uh, survival, and they they cannot focus on internal demands. Which is a politically radical way to approach your work. It is. I'm realizing that swims in direct opposition to what our uh, leaders prefer. It, it very much does. So down the road just a bit, we're going to come back to this topic and we're going to flesh it out a little bit more. I want to know more about how upgraded brains fit into your political values and how you how you help people with that. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about my values of emotional freedom and how how that actually comes out in therapy, specifically what that means, what I'm doing, um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So, listeners, um, we hope that you will write to us. We still very much value what you have to say and the questions and stories that you bring to us. Um, so, therapy at gmail.com. Keep your emails coming to us, and um, we'll be back soon. Um, The next episode will be with Doug Shirley again, talking more about the village of the therapist. Um, And then after that, we'll bring some more political talk. Wonderful. I I really enjoyed having Doug on, and uh, we, we really value your feedback. So please email us and... uh, I hope you have a great day. All right. Take care, you guys. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Reconceive. We hope you've learned something today you can use to reconnect and feel better. Tune in next week for more on transforming practice. Until then, have a great week.